I hope you get a sense of why I'm so excited to be able to uh, interview this man. I first became aware of Steve through his teaching partner, Michaela Boehm, several years ago. Michaela is someone with an international reputation. She's a therapist, counselor, somatic uh, practitioner, and also the holder of a tantric yogic lineage too. She is uh, someone that has worked with Gwyneth Paltrow, Jada Pinkett Smith, Will Smith. Will Smith has even dedicated an entire chapter of his autobiography to the impact that her work has had on his life and relationship. The two of them together, that is Michaela and Steve, uh, teach retreats, they teach men's study programs, women's study programs, and Steve will explain a little bit about their approach, which I invite you to to enjoy because it's it's so refreshing because for me, I can't think of anyone in this industry, personal development, relationships, intimacy, embodiment, that I'd rather listen to. I, I look up to these two so much. I find them to have a high degree of integrity, of humility. There's a grounded, no-fluff approach. There's no preaching. It's, as Steve mentions, like an inquiry-based approach. And I think there's a lot, I think that's really what's needed in this industry uh, much more these days. In the interview itself, which you can probably see is a good two hours long, I give Steve a lot of time and depth to really dive into the areas that he's knowledgeable and passionate about. We start the interview by talking a little bit about how and where he grew up and how that uh, shaped him. We then dive into talking about um, masculinity and this question of what that even means, what polarity is and and how that can be uh, taught. We talk about meditation, which is something that he's uh, a huge uh, fan of and practitioner of. We also dive into movement practices and embodiment and talk about his movement Cohen practice in particular. And we finish up by talking about where he wants to go and, and what life looks like for him. Steve is funny. Steve makes me laugh often. Steve, there are are a few pauses where he really considers his answers. So prepare yourself for a couple of gaps. There's also a piece in the middle where I ask him about masculinity and men's work. And he then turns the whole thing around and asks me several questions to the point where I feel like I'm being coached. And he really takes his time to unpick where I'm coming from (laughs) and, and what I really want to know. And I really value that. So it's a personal journey for me, and uh, I'll, it really enabled me to reflect on my approach sometimes and how that's not always so helpful. And he does it with uh, style and, and class, and it's as much a personal journey and experience for me as it, as it will be for you, the listener, I hope. <laughs> so with that long intro aside, I bring you Steve James. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the Man Reimagined podcast. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. How are you doing there? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you, Richard, for inviting me. So I've given the listeners a clear introduction of you, your work, and, uh, and my relationship to you as well, as in having learned from you um, indirectly for several years now. And I wanted to dive straight into a bit about your background because you've achieved a lot. You've done a lot, more than the average Joe, I would say. And it's a fascinating kind of way into this conversation just to give people an understanding of what you were up to kind of as a teen. There's Scottish fencing, there's 
dabbles in Christianity and kind of, kind of taking you up to how you find yourself in this work. Would you care to just share a bit about your background? Sure. Well, uh, when it comes, yeah, I mean, I grew up on a little Shetland, uh, little island called Shetland Islands, which is a small Scottish island quite far to the north on the way to Norway, actually, where Shetland ponies come from. <laughs> there's, there's little ponies that uh, people may have seen. So, um, yeah, that's where I grew up. And uh, there, uh, often I frame it like this, um, I grew up in a Catholic context, but without the doctrine. So my mother believed in a private faith. Um, the idea that when you go to the church or the mass, which is the ritual of Catholicism, you go to the masts, not really there. You don't go there necessarily to celebrate um, doctrinal concordance with other people who believe the same sorts of things. It's more of a, a, a time for private reflection or private contact or, you know, with God or quietness or something like this. So um, I was an altar boy also in that context. Um, and it really enjoyed the ritual of it. The altar boy moves around the ritual, carrying things, usually a candle or a cup or something. It's preordained choreographed thing. And it's the same every time. We went to an early mass, early morning mass. So I could, as you point out, um, do my fencing training later in the day. So we went to an early morning mass and there was no singing in that mass. So it was just the liturgy, just the raw ritual. Um, no kumbayas or things like that. And that was also, I think, helped to strip it from some of those um, non-ritual elements and left it really uh, an empty vessel for for contemplation or reflection or quiet quietness, stillness, you know, that sort of thing. Um, we weren't allowed to go to the catechism or Sunday school, for example. My mother, uh, I think, had the idea, like Billy Connolly said, the comedian Billy, Billy Connolly said that well, he said it's stronger than this, but more or less anyone who wants to be a politician, it should immediately disqualify them from being a politician. You know, the idea that sort of you, you wouldn't want to be that, you know, you should be a sort of reluctant, you know, politician, something like this. Anyway, and I think the same idea with catechism teachers, she had something like that, saying, why do these people want to indoctrinate you? I mean, literally give you the doctrine. So we weren't allowed to go to that Sunday school where they take the kids out and give them the tenets of the faith. So I didn't really get, I didn't get that, that kind of experience of Catholicism or Christianity that one hears so commonly and that uh, you know many many people have, have, have rough experiences with that sort of thing. I, I, I had a pretty good experience early on anyway. So that, that, that laid I think a certain kind of, I don't know if it was an expression of uh, an interest in contemplative things or meditationy things. Uh, maybe it was I, I already had it and it was just it just found a home there or maybe it nurtured it, who knows. So that that's that and then at the same time roughly around the same time about five i was an altar boy and also started martial arts karate training and i really loved it i fell in love with it i got it um and was super into that for a long time so that was the beginning of um the sort of strands that i think you're talking about these strands of um exploring contemplative experience the mind um etc meditation this sort of this sort of track whatever you want to call it i say contemplative there because it's kind of a broad track not just meditation and also um the body um, martial arts it later of course as you point out went on to fencing um western fencing that's i went furthest um 
with that in terms of competition. You know, I was on the uh, Scottish squad in my teens, selected for the Scottish squad in Sabre. For that, that's as far as I went, you know, but uh, I didn't go further than that. And uh, from there, but all those things, as you pointed out, yeah, moving through all kinds of, I was in those days very interested in everything from yoga to all kind of meditation because of martial arts, it leads a little bit into the Asian mm -hmm. and Eastern religions and philosophies. So I would explore those and read about those and practice things from those in the sort of enthusiastic way a child or a teenager does, not, not especially formally. We did meditate in the martial arts class. Um, and so all of that to me was just, I didn't see much, I mean, I know there are differences in doctrine and differences in, in these things, but I, I sort of saw it as a, as a realm of exploration that, without much conflict, really. So yeah. what I'm hearing, like, it's absolutely fascinating to me. What I'm hearing you say is like pretty much from the age of five, you've experienced a sense of uh, ritual, but without dogma. Thanks to your mom, you've experienced a sense of kind of discipline. You know, in, in terms of the training you've been doing, you've had an exposure to, uh, yeah, the sort of Eastern practices through karate and then through fencing. Like there's a sense of a real, like strong determination and achievement to want to or to be able to get to this, that, the level that you'd reached. And so that's, is it fair to say that's not the average, <laughs> that's not the, the average experience? Like, <clears throat> and also, uh, how, how do you relate to that idea that, you know, that, that is quite a, a different experience of the average kid? I mean, I, that's just my re reaction to it. But the idea that you're also kind of cut off, I would say, the Shetland Isles isn't, um, I've not been there, but it doesn't seem like it's a hubbub of, of you know, culture and culture wars. And it, it's, it's quite separated out as well. So cleaner, perhaps, in some way, like, what do you think were the advantages and disadvantages of growing up there specifically and, and how that allowed you to do all of this? Yeah, I mean, to the first point, I don't know if it's that unusual, actually. I think lots of children have passionate interests in things. Uh, the thing is that it's sometimes not easy to understand a child's world. How are they seeing? I think a lot of children are operating um, with a kind of open curiosity and uh, enthusiasm or at least have that capacity. I'm not saying that they're all, you know, uh, that, 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 that expresses the same way in, in every child. But I think there's something about, mo most children, I think, have something like that. So I don't think it's that unusual. I mean, now, of course, m many years later, we're in this context, and you're asking me to reflect on the origins of, of what it is I'm doing now. So I'm talking about it in that way. But I think a lot of, a lot of children are, are similar. A lot of people, actually have um, curiosities, passions, interests, and intelligences that perhaps they don't recognize, but they operate with all the time. So I don't know how unusual it is. Um, but anyway, growing up in Shetland, yeah, it is a strange place to grow up. Actually, um, in Shetland, you're never more than two miles from the sea because it's an island and you're always around the sea. We're in the middle of the North Sea. The weather is extremely, well, it's just extremely really. The weather, is, <laughs> the weather is hashtag extremely. And they say you have four seasons in the day, you know, it rains sideways, all that kind of thing. So there's a lot of things you can say about Shetland. But actually, because it has uh, what I think at the time, maybe still is was the largest oil refinery or, or oil terminal or something called Sulumbo in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, actually, it was fairly 
uh, happening place. Small place, 20 something thousand people, so small, but it had a lot of influx of foreigners, what the Shetlanders call Suthmuthers, who were there working in some capacity with the oil or, or you know, some sort of related thing. So there was a lot of money in Shetland for public services. Um, and a nice place. I mean, I don't, don't know what it's like now. I'm, I'm, you know, this is a long time ago, but it was a, ni a nice place to grow up peacefully. Yes, we didn't really have any much internet. And when even when people got broadband, we didn't get it. So it was excruciatingly slow. The sort of internet that it's it's more of a pain to to use it than not. Yeah, that sort of thing. Running around the hills and all that kind of stuff. I suppose it's what you'd imagine a Scottish island upbringing to be. But uh, a nice place, you know. It sounds idyllic. I mean, that's, this is just where my mind's going. And I guess, you know, growing up in the south of England, I, I, that's the kind of upbringing that um, I, I wish I'd had the, 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 the awareness or the dedication to have found something like that and actually just commit to. There's a sense of commitment, I guess, as well in some of the practices that you're doing. It doesn't sound like you were, well, maybe you were sort of sleepwalking through your altar boy life and you're like well what the fuck maybe you were like well this i, I get this you, you mentioned the sense of silence that it gave you and even then that you found value in it right so i guess I'm, I'm projecting my own kind of experience of wanting to have got into and committed to such things because now as an, an adult i see the value of sticking to something and, and mastering for want of a better word or spending a long time you know, actually just sticking to one thing. So I guess that's what I'm trying to express is perhaps what I see is lacking in today's society a little bit, people being kind of overwhelmed with choice. And you seem like someone that uh, is, you know, you're able to sit uh, in, in meditation for kind of three hours. And that's a regular thing that you do. And so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm trying to link these two things together. But do, do, you, do you see a connection there? Do you agree that other people are, could have benefited from something like that? It's hard for me to say, to answer it in that, when it's framed like that, if other people, you know, people are different. And um, uh, so on. So I, I can't really compare, but I will agree with you that the fractioning, the fractionation of attention, the, the, the fracturing of attention coming from um, our devices and et cetera, et cetera, certainly has some, some negative consequences in terms of stress levels. Um, and mental health, and therefore, I suppose, physical health too, and relationships, I agree. I think that's wide, widely recognized, but with a sense of hopelessness, <laughs> because it's like, those phones are so interesting and fun, you know, and that YouTube <laughs> is so cool. And, uh, you know, all that. So it's hard to know exactly how to put the cat back in the bag, isn't it? But um, I do, I do think there's something to be said for the ability to sustain attention and so on. Yeah. Um, there's an element of discipline to that. And there's also an element of um, enjoyment and yeah, enjoyment and passion and enthusiasm. These two things seem to go together. And uh, yeah, there's some, something like that. It's a different time scale, the delayed gratification versus instant gratification. We have this mm -hmm. time scale, we have this temporal um, means of uh, assessing our choices and and so on, and that if one can acquire that taste for delayed gratification, it is a taste. It's a slightly different taste, um, and sort of attuned to that, then there can be, a, I think, 
it can be quite a satisfying dynamic. So I think there's something for that. But people are wired differently with delayed gratification. It seems to be that way. There's that famous study um, putting the children in the room. Uh, you perhaps heard of this, and uh, it's a famous study on, and they trace the track the children actually later in their lives. Um, I forget now the name of the study, unfortunately. I, I was just looking at it the other day. But um, they put these kids in the room and they put a little sweetie there, and they say, Okay, we're going to leave the room, and if you don't eat the sweetie, when we come back, you can have two or three or something like this. Okay, so don't eat the sweetie. You can if you want, but if you eat it, you only get one. But if you wait, when we come back, you'll get three or something like that and the kids go okay and they sit there <laughs> and some of them you know some of them can do it and some of them can't and depending on your delayed gratification uh it has various different effects later on in life to do with material success and other things like that and health and so on i think they track these kids later on um i'm, I'm afraid i'm giving a very vague summary of this study but the point is that it seems that this temporal dimension of satisfaction or um, is, is something that is at play there also yeah it sounds like the earlier in life we learn the ability to kind of not reach out and you know take the thing immediately and satisfy ourselves the more earlier earlier in life we can actually learn to have this skill the the, the more set up for success we could actually be because success is about you know again this is a, a sentence of my own uh, summation but success is about you know planning and being willing to kind of work long term towards something right rather than just expecting instant results i mean i'm also being vague but is that is there a link there do you think i think it's just a different style and there are pros and cons to those styles if there weren't pros and cons to that style then we could say it would have been selected out um you know a while ago but uh i give an example mm. when i was a, a kid i also liked to play uh, sometimes video games, computer games, right? And my brother also, I have a younger brother of two years, also likes to play computer games. And we had a really different style of playing computer games. So let's say you're playing one of those games where you're starting off as some sort of warrior and you've got to go through different levels, killing you know various different monsters and so on up until the end. Well, my style of playing those computer games was, and I'm bringing this up because it's old, uh, it, you know, it's, it's a young rather, I should say, um, pattern. So I think people are just a bit different is my point. And there are pros and cons to that. But I, my style was to go through every single room, killing every rat and in the first room, you know, usually some sort of clear this dungeon of rats sort of thing. I clear all the rats, go to every room, get all the experience points, all those little experience points. And then I go to the next, uh, level kill all the skeletons and try to go into every room not just the direct path and do all this kill all the and open all the chests and it takes a long time to do it that way but what happens is each time you go up to the next level you're a little bit um you have a, a little bit of a surplus of experience or an excess of experience and that starts to stack so that as you get later and later in the game you start to get more overpowered um it, it starts to stack uh, not all games are designed this way but but sometimes it's like that so you start to just get a little bit of an edge on the next level and a little bit more of an edge and that stacks so that the game even though in one sense gets harder and harder in another sense um uh, by the end often you can become quite overpowered um or at least maximally maximally powered so it's this sort of hard at the beginning easy at the end kind of thing my brother's strategy and he's actually has completed many more games than i have because of this strategy 
his strategy was to just go straight through, you know. I wouldn't say it's the path, the most efficient path necessarily, uh, but as efficient as he could manage. He just liked to go straight through. And I would read the manual beforehand, you know, and try and figure it out. And he would just go straight in and start hacking and slashing and so on. And, you know, so this built different skills uh, with him. And he'd finish a lot of, you know, a lot of games and I'd, you know, kill, I'd kill a lot of rats, you know. But so there's there's pros and cons to each of those uh, those approaches. Um, it's You need to have both. You need to have the ability, I think, to delay gratification sometimes and improvise other times. Um, you need to, on the one hand, get all your ducks in a row, but on the other hand, understand that sometimes, you know, the great is the enemy of the good. Uh, we always hear that the good is the enemy of the great, but meaning that sometimes good enough, you know, stops you from what you could get. But sometimes um, aiming for perfection, of course, uh, you get nothing. In an attempt, for example, to become an extraordinarily fit person mm. in the gym, you fail to become an even moderately fit person because you can't sustain the practice of, of working out or whatever is the case. You know, in an attempt to become a fully enlightened Buddha who meditates 10 hours a day or you know one hour a day or something, you, you don't even get around to meditating five minutes. So that, that's another idea that you can become, if you're advanced in your mind, you can you be a beginner in your practice very often. And if you're a beginner in your mind, then you're likely to be more advanced. Because an advanced person has greater expectations of their performance. And sometimes there's a distance between what you expect from yourself and what you can actually muster. Five minutes a day is infinitely better than zero minutes a day. But five minutes isn't very much. That's a beginner level. I want I want to be serious about my meditation. I want to do more meditation than that. Well, you know, the practice that counts is the practice that you do. Starting at five minutes and actually doing it is infinitely better than having an hour a day meditation habit that you do once every couple of months. It's funny, as you were talking about your approach to killing rats and skeletons and, and yeah. building up this sense of power, it's like, I wonder if that's not a metaphor for your approach to, to how you meditate. And then you kind of started talking about that. I mean, let's kind of, let's, let's lean into that because it's, it's such a, a big part of your life. And uh, I know a lot of people struggle with meditation and, and ask about uh, you know, what's the value of it. And I'm just sitting there and I'm trying to, you know, stop my thoughts. And it's like, but that's not how you're supposed to do it. Like when I did this course with you, which you run, um, like perhaps still actually this, you know, like just meditation guru, Viking meditation club. It was built on this premise of just starting with five minutes a day. And it was really simple. And then it built up to these longer um, sittings. It wasn't, you weren't asking us to sit for three hours. Those that want to can, but I wonder if you can just take us through your relationship to meditation. I mean, because we kind of, we've left the Shetland Isles by now, I guess, like you've, you've studied so much, like how can you try and distill that down for my Winnie the Pooh brain in, in, into a way that's like, how has meditation benefited you? And, and is, is there one particular style that you would recommend for people that really struggle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people, you're absolutely right that many people, meditation is one of those things that many people would like to do or think they'd like to do and uh, struggle to get around to. That's, that's, that is true. Um, and the course you're talking about, I think, yeah, I have this thing, Guru Viking Meditation Club, which I started um, at the beginning of the pandemic as a free weekly class actually on Wednesday we have three different streams of that at three different times in the day for different time zones and um, it's an hour 
class and half an hour we do guided practice and then the second half of the hour it's I, I i'll say maybe for five or six minutes something about what we did the technique and then it's open for people to report their experiences or ask questions and or have discussions and so on and then also from that came these three hour deep dives and so we, occasionally people would say well we want to do more loving kindness practice or we want to do more visualization practice or we want to do more self-inquiry and so we do these occasional three hour deep dives and it's more or less what you'd expect is a deeper dive into a theme. And uh, from those came these month long courses. And uh, all of this was free to, to support, is free to support uh, people in the pandemic. Now, what is it now? May 2022. So this began in something like March, April 2020. Yeah. And so there are two courses that are going on. One of them is. Uh, get a daily practice. And that's the one I think you're talking about where we basically go from five minutes in the first week, it's a month course. And then the next week you add 10 minutes, you, you go to 10 minutes, adding five minutes, the next week, 15, next minute, 20. But those times are a little bit optional. The point is each week, there's also lecture content and there's guided meditation downloads and so on and so forth. It's supposed to show the practice of practice. What I mean by that is there's the practice of meditation itself which is your own personal journey with meditation. And that's, you know, depending on the technique you do and depending on who you are, you know, uh, there is a journey of, of meditation that's open to you. When you meditate, you, it's going to take you on some kind of journey. Okay, that's the practice of meditation. But the practice of practice is not specific to meditation. It's, if you want, it's that set of skills or understandings that gets you to the cushion in the first place. So whether it's meditation or going to the gym or Rosetta Stone Spanish, there are certain principles and understandings that one has to acquire uh, in order to practice anything, actually. And so the Get A Daily Practice is really focused on that, the practice of practice. Um, and so we look at things like uh, get a daily minimum, a golden minimum, actually, I call it a golden minimum, which is a, a amount of practice you can do that's really easy to do so easy to do it's like a minimum that you can even do it when you're tired or you don't feel like it so little that you can't believe you got away with it when you finished you think was that it i can't believe i got away with it so that's important to have a golden minimum most people set their practice goals aspirationally i'd like to be the sort of person who practices half an hour a day so i'm going to set that as my goal and they're leveraging the negative feelings of shortfall i don't want to break my commitment so i'm going to stretch myself to this half an hour a day, let's say. Um, the problem with that is it works for some people, but uh, for many of us, it's just simply not, it's simply not sustainable. It's too ambitious and it's leveraging this sort of negative leverage. Um, it works up until you, you miss a day and you think, yeah, well, never mind. I guess it's not for me. Or, you know, I guess I'm just a loser or I guess I can't do it or I'll do it next time or whatever loop or cycle you have. And the point mm -hmm. is anyway, you fall off the horse. So it's better to have a minimum that's super easy like flirting with your cushion, you just sort of sit on the cushion you know, for one minute, five minutes, and it's really easy. And then you can do it. Then you become a sort of person who practices regularly, three times a week, four times a week, five times, some, some people do every day, or most days. And that allows you to maintain a through line. And it seems that consistency is, uh, is one of those things like with, like with exercise, you know, meditation uh, is one of those things that benefits from consistency. 
uh, you could argue that a little bit each day is better than a lot occasionally. For example, if you practice to make the maths easy, 10 minutes a day for a month, that's 300 minutes. But if you do it each, each day, those 10 minutes, by the end of the month, you get, it's like 330 minutes. It's the effect of that. You get a bonus, a consistency bonus, like some sort of interest payment, just from the consistency. Whereas if you just did, I don't know, 300 minutes in one day, I mean, you know, okay, so you get the point. The principle, I think, is, is that consistency um, multiplies or um, compounds, another way of saying it, compounds the efforts. It's like the rocks, you have hard rocks, and then you have the waves that crash against the rocks. You don't see much, but over a long enough period of time, the consistent crashing of the waves against the rocks can erodes the and shapes the rock face. So it's a little bit like that. Time and pressure. You apply the pressure gently of consistency and let time compound the efforts. So there's some other things too, like following your interest, following your interest, following things that interest you, um, bringing uh, juice and uh, enjoyment to your practice. Um, one might think of music lessons. As a child, um, in our school anyway, we had this sort of brief period of time where people were offered music lessons. Many, I think many, many children have experienced something like that. And uh, kids love music, but they hate music lessons. <laughs> Why is that? Well, I think one of the reasons is that the pedagogy of music instruction, especially for children, is very often a more or less direct, direct line to the acquisition of the necessary skills. So if it's piano, there are certain skills one needs, finger independence, hand independence, music reading. These are some of the initial skills. And uh, it's a sort of direct, rather dry line. There's no, the child does not really relate that to music. They love music. If you see a child with music, they dance, they like it. But this piano doesn't seem to be related to that. The context is lost. Perhaps the teacher doesn't have the context themselves, or perhaps they just are hoping that if the child survives the pedagogical process, they'll emerge with the sufficient skills to then be able to access music. But one of the great, um, if you want, sticking points of the intermediate musician who has followed such a, an approach is there are a few different sticking points of intermediate musicians. One of them is technique ceiling, but another one is connecting to the music. One of the things one often uh, has to work with an intermediate musician, even at the just pre-professional level on, is connecting to the music. It's the same with singers. What are you singing? What are the words? What is the emotion? Connecting to that, expressing that, understanding and communicating the song, not just hitting the notes, or you know, the guitar player, the piano player, you know, really attempting to find what is, you know, find a way of expressing something in the music sort of idea. And so this is a sticking point that can happen with intermediate musicians because, you know, those that survive that pedagogical process, okay, some emerge fully formed, but, but you know, some, some still lack that context even when they have the technique. So this is a long way of saying that a good teacher um, arguably can fold the technical development into uh, a lesson that retains at least, at least at the beginning, some kind of connection to the context of music making so that the child is nourished by the educational journey of music whilst acquiring the skills. They don't lose sight um, of the context. The context is always at least being implied. 
Um, that's a, a good teacher can can do that. And then very often what happens is at a certain point, the child or the, the learner um, will return to technical exercises um, with an understanding of what they're for. They'll say, I need some more technique. I need to really shed, as they say in music, I need to shed. Um, but they'll go there themselves in a certain sense. They don't have to be dragged. So I find that's true for even things like meditation, that sometimes it helps to follow your interest, uh, to go um, not to so always so worry totally about the, the most efficient path. For some that works, efficient path. Follow your interest and be doing it, be involved in it, be practicing. And sometimes the circuitous route gets you there because it nourishes you along the way. And then at a certain time, what often happens is a person will say, I need the rigor. I need the technique. I need the challenge. I need the austerity. I want to take away the toys. I want to take away the, um, the, the comforts of my practice. And I want to get straight down to brass tacks. People will do that. They'll do it themselves. You know, they'll do it themselves. Um, they'll be drawn to that. And it's a natural phase, I think. Um, so the trick is to model rigor of practice and precision of practice, um, but have that folded into an attitude to practice, which retains the context of meditation. Um, so, you know, of well, what what is that? I don't know. Human flourishing, you know, enlightenment, whatever. Uh, you, you pick your school, pick your pick your philosophy there. But there's some somehow the fruits of the practice um, need to be need to be um, um, hinted at as a teacher, I think, or at least implied in the same way that teaching a child beginning piano, um, a good musician teaching a beginning skill communicates something about the end of the path that a, a lesser teacher um, is perhaps themselves unaware of. And so even at that beginning stage, those beginning skills are infused with that context. So I'm you know, musing here. Uh, these are the sort of things we talk about anyway. Uh, a, a bit more concisely, I would I would say, in the things like get a daily practice course, right? Letting your practice breathe. How, what happens when you want to expand it? Oh yes, but you also need to contract it sometimes. And this sort of thing we talk, talk about that. And then the other course we do is the uh, strong determination sitting course. And you mentioned, um, you know, sitting for you know one, two, three, four hours, and we do that. That's that's the training in that. We're about to do it actually in June. I don't know when this is going to come out, but in, we're about to, we're about to do that in June of 2020. Two, but um, there we start off. Well, this is all the training in extended sitting, which is a style of sitting. Okay, I'm going to sit, meditate for an hour. That's what we do the first week. Then the second week we'll meet and we'll do two hours. The third week three hours. The fourth week four. It might it might sound insane to sit for so long, but there's a way you can build up to it. There's a way you can understand it. Of course, you can move your body if you're if it's if you're in pain, or you can just sit there and not move. You know, which is eventually becomes very comfortably possible. But you know, what about this extended sitting, strong determination sitting? What's that about? And what's the idea behind it? And what are the right ways to approach it? And what are some mistakes to avoid? And this sort of thing? And what about posture? And you know, how do you acquire the kind of a posture that you can comfortably sit in for three or four hours, comfortably, not gritting your teeth and holding on to your zafu for dear life? How do, what does it take to acquire that kind of posture? For example, um, it's easier than you think. <laughs> you know, it's actually easier than you think. Um, the trick is, you could argue to, um, you know, well, perhaps I'm just monologuing too long here. But the trick 
fundamentally to acquiring a posture is to sit in it comfortably, regularly. <laughs> if you sit in a posture, meditation posture, with tension and pain, and you try to grit your teeth and go through it, then the body will tense up against that posture, and you're fighting the very thing you want. The barrier to relaxed posture and you know, being able to sit for an extended period of time is usually bodily and or psychological tension. These tend to be shed with meditation practice gradually. So the trick is to sit in whatever posture it is regularly, but never or rarely anyway, at least not you know, on a consistent basis within your comfort level. And if there's stiffness, pain, you move. Over time, gradually you acquire the posture, your body gets used to it and you find yourself able organically, naturally to sit in the posture. As one of my old teachers used to say, Godfrey Devereaux, um, when the neuromuscular preparation is adequate, the body just takes itself there without any struggle. So those are some of the things we do in the meditation club. You ask the question of why do people meditate, right? And uh, or what did I get out of it and this sort of thing? Maybe I should take a breath now. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, I'm just happy to kind of listen um, because the, I found so much value. Like I've done some of this stuff, but I didn't commit to the, the longer sittings. And so just selfishly, I'm like listening to you going, yeah, I'll, I'll see you in June. You know, that's, um, and I'll make sure that this podcast goes out so that other people also understand the value of these longer sittings because, yeah, like initially coming into it and learning to kind of sit regularly for 10, even 30 minutes, like that's such a huge challenge. And yet, yeah. like you said, then at some point it's like, okay, well, I'm ready to dive in deeper. I'm, I'm ready for something um, more. Like, uh, you know, you go to a yoga studio or I used to go to practice yoga and it's like, I'm doing these funny shapes and I'm feeling really relaxed and there's something magical happening. I need to do or learn more. And then one would go then to a yoga teacher training course, which makes you a teacher technically, but it really teaches you what's behind it, the philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's what I'm sensing is where you're going. And clearly you operate at a level of depth, which really, really excites me. And I, I just hope anyone listening is going to jump on board on this as well. So thank you. Um, but I would love to, yeah, come back to that sense of what it's given you because you mentioned these different schools and you've, it sounds like you've, I know that you're knowledgeable about a few of them. So, you know, what, why, why do you do it? You seem like a, just a very curious human that's dedicated his life to, to contemplative studies, you know, and to, and to passing what he's learned on is, is that motivation enough? What, what, what do you get out of it? I would say, you know, it's very kind of uh, kind of you to say things like that, but and you know, from a certain point of view, looking back, I think things like dedicating one's life. I think one can say that retroactively, hmm. um, and say, well, it seems like if we, if you know, from where I'm looking now, uh, we could interpret one's biography, you know, leading in a certain well, this kind of contributed to this, and uh, maybe it didn't seem like it at the time. I think, to be honest with you, for me personally the motivation is following my interest and curiosity as you use that word curiosity that's really what it comes down to just curiosity and interest uh, i think that's what what an enjoyment is what drives it so i meditate say because dedicated I like. is too much of a, a grandiose kind of term you don't you're not you're not down with no, that i right? mean dedication is is naturally flowers from that um i think dedication naturally flowers from that um Every morning when I wake up, I make a cup of coffee, right? I love to do it. And I have one of those things that you twist, you know, like a little, I don't remember the name of it. 
I like the process of it. And uh, I like drinking it, of course. I like the ritual of it. You know, I, I mean, I'm not saying ritual in some highfalutin sense. I'm using an intentionally mundane example, which I think many, many people listening will do that. I just like to do it. You know, I don't think about it a great deal. You know, it's just an enjoyment. Okay, yeah, sometimes when I'm going to bed at night, I'll say, oh, I'm looking forward to waking up and having that coffee. I mean, sometimes that actually happens. But a lot of times I don't think about it. It's just like a nice part of my day. You could say that's dedicated. He's a dedicated coffee maker. (laughs) Over his adult life, since discovering coffee. Steve has, you know, rarely gone a day without making at least one cup of coffee for himself. And sometimes many more. You could say it like that. But I just mostly like it. So it's the same with meditation. Yeah, of course, dedication, you know, comes from the rigor, like I mentioned before. It's a natural stage, I think, flowering from, in my case, I'm not saying this is true, should be the way for everyone. Enjoyment, curiosity, uh, etc. Yeah. People meditate for all kinds of reasons, though. And I interview a lot of people on my podcast about, you know, it's a lot of it's about meditation. And so why do they meditate? Why do they start, etc.? A lot of people meditate because they're suffering, they have difficult childhood or they have terrible anxiety or they met an interesting person who captured their imagination or they read an an interesting book that captured their imagination. Sometimes it happens like that. Or they were kind of bored one day and they went along to meditation. I mean, there's 101 reasons people get in, uh, one reasons people get into it, you know. I think, um, yeah, uh, to, to help them with their addictions or etc etc you know some people are just sensitive to the existential tension of life death you know impermanence entropy um and it you know bothers them sufficiently that they're drawn to some kind of religious or spiritual practice of some sort so i think there's so many different so, so many different reasons some for some people it's an identity building mission identity sculpting mission or a performance enhancing device yeah for others it's a self transcendence mechanism or escape escapism yeah. or escape inism escape inism can we say <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know there's so many different different approaches in there and i think that's okay that's legitimate yeah it's interesting you, you take a kind of um i, I, I failed to describe it as the, i don't have the words but you manage to like I'm I'm sort of quite charged with you know an idea about a concept and it's like this and it's like this and you're very kind of like okay well there's, there's different ways to look at it Rich <laughs> that's kind of you know that, that that's really helpful for me you know because uh, I'm someone that's uh, very pitta driven if you were to sort of talk in Ayurvedic terms um, and just throwing myself into things and you know too quickly sometimes and, and quite fiery and so it's 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 very pacifying and in an extremely positive sense to kind of hear this uh, of a lot of what I'm thinking and what I'm asking you sort of balanced out like this. It, it's um, there's, there's layers to this that I'm, I'm benefiting from that uh, I'm grateful for. So thank you for that. Um, I'll, let's take a kind of less than subtle kind of left turn at the traffic lights and, and head in the direction of, um, of masculinity and, and men's work. Like I'm, I'm keen to work with you in this area. I don't know if you, you'd call it men's work and I, I'd love to know your thoughts on this, but as someone that works more with men these days, but is, is kind of questioning the validity of men's work and uh, as a separate sort of quandary of mine, like I know that you and your teaching partner, Michaela, 
you offer kind of um, men's study groups, women's study groups, and you work in the realms of masculine and feminine polarity and that there's such loaded terms today and you were quite clear on your website in the application process that look we don't you know we're, we're trying to steer away from uh how how this is typically presented so how to begin this conversation you know what i guess what's your feeling or how do you respond when you hear the term men's work what does that mean for you and how does that um what does your work entail in relation to that yeah, um, I would say that uh, maybe we'll return to this later. We don't really use the word masculine and feminine polarity much, actually. Um, and there's reasons for that, which I've explained elsewhere. I could I could explain it now or later. Um, mainly to, to do with the fact that it's just a rather loaded term. These are loaded terms. And so, you know, okay. Sometimes people use them in a very technical sense, and that's fair enough. There are words that can be used in a technical way. Um, but of course, one of the classic things, you know, I mean, we think about physics, for example, words like force or uh, mass, momentum, you know, these all have quite specific technical words, but sometimes in a colloquial setting can be used in a very loose way. And it's appropriate to do that. I mean, there are different registers of language. Of course, one of the, um, difficulties of using technical language is that a person has to be read into it. What your intuition a word means in a colloquial sense and what it means in a technical sense, sometimes they're not the same thing. And so there needs to be, you know, there's always this sort of definitional thing, necessity when using technical language. And some technical language is so colloquially loaded that it, you know, in a sense, if you can use another word, why not? And I think masculine and feminine is a bit like that. So if you look up the dictionary definition of the words, um, masculine and feminine, it says something like masculine would be, you know, traits typically associated with males. Feminine would be, you know, traits typically associated with females. Okay, something like that. Um, it's been used in many different ways also. The, ma the masculine and feminine, it's a sort of, if you want, archetypal, archetypal categories of, of, um, of duality or polarity. Yeah. This reproductive pairing has been used to describe other kinds of pairings throughout histories and cultures around the world. I'm not advocating this, I'm just reporting you know, what, how it's been used. So for instance, well, the sun is masculine, right? And the, male is, uh, the moon is feminine. Sometimes you hear that in certain cultures, uh, they represent that. But then in other cultures, it's different. For instance, in Tibetan symbolism, the moon is um, masculine and the sun is feminine actually to do with the semen and the omen uh, ovum uh, perhaps uh, we see um things like shiva and shakti this sort of um sexed duality of male and female as a, as a way of you know taking that category and applying it well isn't it a bit like you know presence uh you know awareness consciousness and then the play of consciousness and this sort of thing so there are these sort of dualities isn't that a bit we could we could you know genderize that in a way as a, as a metaphor um and people have done that even in jungian psychology they talk about uh, reconciling oneself with the contrasexual parts the anima and the animus one's inner contrasexual part um as part of the 
individuation process, right? That's described in Jungian psychology. So it's been used in many different ways. Um, the problem comes, I think, when so it's in, in a sense one can see the move to um, do that. What, you know, we, we look around, we see this reproductive pairing, and we apply that uh, in, in other to other dualities. I think the problem comes when we then reassign that back to dictate human behavior. So, you know, um, the sun is like a male, isn't it? Uh, the sun is, we could think of the sun as masculine and the moon is feminine. Well, that means men should be like the sun. Women should be like the moon. Well, some people say things like, oh, masculinity is like uh, penetrative and uh, aggressive and uh, so on. So men should be that way. Um, femininity is like the flow, right? This flow. Women should be soft. Women should be flowing and so on. They can't, they should not react in a masculine way. So we, we reapply the categories back to the individuals as behavioral prescriptions, gender role behavioral prescriptions. And I think that's a bit um, uh, low resolution, clumsy, actually, it's clumsy. Uh, but it's simple and it's prescriptive and simple and prescriptive. And, you know, uh, these are very appealing <laughs> things. Simplicity. Oh, I, I get that. Prescriptive. Oh, cool. I just have to do this. That's that's it's appealing, but it's clumsy. We know that, you know, each of us has a range of possible expressions within us. Um, and each of us, you know, whether we know people identify in all kinds of ways and all kinds of spectrums and so on and so forth. And, you know, be that as it may. The fact is that there's a lot of diversity in human beings and people can act in all kinds of different ways and on different days. So to limit ourselves to um, very strict, rigid gender prescription, behavioral prescriptions, attitudinal prescriptions um, is, I think, clumsy. And to filter that through some kind of, you know, sun and moon, Shiva Shakti uh, polarity is, is doubly clumsy <laughs> because now it's just, yeah. So I think it's, um, so we don't use it too much. We do talk about things like leading and following. Now we're talking about couples dynamics, right? Um, leading and following, maybe an erotic encounter, might be uh, a great way of creating a kind of a spark. You know, if both of you are trying to lead, then it's like not so great. If both of you are just sort of sitting there passively, it's maybe nice and cuddly, but it's not going anywhere. Sometimes someone needs to take the initiative. So there are certain dynamics that doesn't have to be gender specific, for example, or sex specific. Um, we might talk about things like that. We might talk about, um, you know, often we talk about go and flow, getting things done mode where you're out working and so on, and then flow more relaxed, um, parasympathetic, you know, chilled out, open to um, physical pleasure, relaxation, relating, etc. But this go and flow mode is not gender specific. Why call it masculine and feminine as it's sometimes done? I mean, I can see why in a very technical sense, you could justify that, because you can justify anything if you want to make your own definition. But I think it's um, unnecessarily clumsy. Why make it so identity-based? Why make it so essentializing? We all have to go out and do things. We all have to have go mode. We all need that capacity to go out and focus on things and get things done. And we all benefit from being able to relax into what you could call flow mode. Relax, you know, get out of that go, go, go mode, reconnect with the body, uh, you know, lower the heart rate. <laughs> and uh, open up to whatever it might be, intimacy, um, relaxation, de-stressing, and so on. Um, why does it need to be uh, gendered in that way? I mean, once again, in a technical sense, I can understand 
I can understand someone's language if they're using it like that. But with all these other implications um, uh, and gender, uh, if you want identity um, issues, why essentialize it like that? You know, uh, why essentialize it like that? It's a range of human behaviors that are available to each of us. So anyway, but you know, this is a trend I hear people are telling me now it's coming back. It's it's a trend that comes back every now and again, like Haley's Comet. It comes back, you know, this sort of masculine feminine thing because it's simple and it's appealing and it's um and it's uh, prescriptive. People like that kind of certainty. Uh, but very often there's a good idea in there somewhere. Someone has a good idea, a way of explaining it, and then the the the, the uh, later iterations of people who are mimicking it or copying it or uh, influenced by it and perhaps don't understand the subtlety of the original idea begins to become more and more derivative, more and more passe. And then eventually someone will overturn the convention with some new cool idea, which itself then begins iterated and becomes more and more low grain resolution or exaggerated and passe. And so this is how these trends move, isn't it? These mm -hmm. good ideas become passe ideas, which become overturned with another good idea, which then becomes a passe. So yeah, they're these sort of phases. So that's um, a little bit about that. Uh, yeah. So thank you for saying it as eloquently as I, I, I also, um, no, no, I, I really, I really buy into this as well. Um, and I really think it's so unhelpful, you know, to think that men have to believe behave in a certain way. And what I I'm seeing is that more and more women are kind of ditching this idea of like, well, women have to behave in a certain way and that they're just doing amazing things with the world and their lives. And men are kind of still holding on to, um, some men are still holding on to this sense of like what a man should be. And that seems like a trap in of itself. And so the way I've tried to make sense out of, say, David Dada's work, and I know that he worked with or taught um, Michaela to some extent, not to say that she's bound to his ideas, but- Yes, that, well, to be precise, um, they were co they taught together actually for, for some years, quite some years actually, 13 years or so, yeah. Thank you for um, clarifying that, that's important. Um, I've tried to make sense of it in that, yes, it's this wide range, it's a spectrum. I, I call it like a, a piano, you know, and there's like the low keys, which might be masculinity and the feminine keys, which might be at the top. And we're complicated humans that, you know, there's just a range of possibilities and we can be all over the place. And it's kind of healthy to look at it that way. And my, uh, it's just a label, it's marketing, just to kind of try and use words that people might be able to relate to. But my attempt at saying what he healthy masculinity would then be an ability to kind of move between these places rather than being rooted in kind of one end and thinking, well, this is how men should be. So your thoughts on that? Am I missing something? Is there any, um, yeah, your thoughts simply. Yeah, I mean, we're looking now at the, the, I think the heart of what I was attempting to say, which is that these terms come because because it's, if you want, such an an essential category, masculine, feminine, male, and female, something like that, right? Or has been used in that way. Okay. Um, for example, in in uh, plugs, you have a male end and a female end. You know that's technically used. They, you know, so the male end is the pins, and the female end is the sockets. Okay, we I think you can see why that is. So uh, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that um, it's commonly used as a pair as a as a way of describing pairings. Okay, so the words can be used in many different uh, ways. So you you talked about several different things there. You talked about David Data. That's one thing. You're talking about, you know, how should a man behave? Well, that's a separate question. You know, what is good? What is manly? 
what is good for a man to do or something like that. What is good for a woman to do? That, that's a separate, an interesting question. There's cultural things there, there's societal things there, maybe biological things there, there's mythic things there. It can be all discussed and so on, you know. But what I was saying is that using these, these terms to apply for something like, to, uh, using these terms so broadly and widely in so many different contexts um, makes an identity issue out of things that needn't be. For example, the ability to go and, you know, get things done, go mode, and then the ability to relax. And many of us get stuck in one of those, one of those other, one or the other modes. I mean, most of us, I think, getting stuck in go mode, stress, accomplishment, you know, doing things, et cetera, et cetera. And so it can be hard to deescalate into a more relaxing uh, flow mode, you know, more creative, more conducive for intimacy, et cetera. Uh, and so on, good for your health. You know. So very often we need to learn w ways to deescalate the nervous system. You know, if we have trauma, certainly that there's another consideration, but it's just simply the stresses of life. Why make why make that? Why label it with some sort of a gendered uh, term? You know, that's that's it. or leading and following, even in in a romantic encounter. We're talking now about couples dynamics, and um, which you know, we work a lot in that um, leading and following in an erotic encounter. Um, a romantic encounter. It doesn't have to, you know, any any partner can do the, their roles, their roles within the dynamic. So sometimes we just slap every duality, every polarity we can see. Um, we stick on this masculine and feminine. Uh, there can be a tendency to do that. I understand. Right? I'm told that this is the case. There's a tendency to do that. And then everything becomes about one's identity as a man or identity as a woman or whatever it is. And so this is very essentialist, boiling us down to to this. Um, I think it's limiting. It's um, unnecessarily um, binary. Why does it need to be like that? Why does getting things done and relaxing need to need to get involved in that? I don't know if it does. M maybe there's a discussion to be had there. But um, anyway, there's this tendency, I think, to use the term too broadly and too widely, to, and to make an essential identity out of out of, of many skills and many many aspects of life that needn't necessarily be that way. Um, but I'm not saying that the terms are meaningless. I'm saying if we use them so broadly, um, then it becomes clumsy and low grain resolution. That's what I'm suggesting. So you don't hear us say it very much. When Michaela and I teach, we don't we don't mention it much because it's pretty rare that it's necessary for that term to really come up. I mean, um, there are groups and there are discussions in culture going on about what is a man, what is a woman, and there's a lot of discussion about that. A lot of different ideas about what is that, you know, um, biological determinism, social constructivism. There's so many different ideas about that. Okay, that's an appropriate venue, I think, for those words to be used because they're trying to define what what are the limits of these categories and so on. But when it comes to sort of whether you're getting things done or relaxing or whether you're leading or following in a romantic encounter. Um, with your spouse for the sake of creating and you know some enjoyment and uh, action of uh, you know excitement um, does it need to be gendered I, I find it to be unnecessary potentially harmful as well right if you like you know if a woman wants to potentially lead in a erotic encounter for example and then she associates that word with somehow being more masculine then that's there's a whole lot of connotations and nonsense that are just kind of confusing whereas if we drop those words all together then it's just about leading and following and it's like hey like there's an interplay here and it's, it's a lot simpler. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's something like that. Yeah. 
and something like that. Yeah, that's right. That these things, yeah, can be more precisely described. Yeah, and maybe you know, maybe if we look statistically, there's a tendency for you know. I'm not saying that I, I can see why people do it. I'm not saying it's totally indefensible or there's no I can no reason why it's been done. I can see why it's been done. I, I'm just talking, when you're asking about how we describe things, there's a reason why we don't describe things uh, in that way. It becomes a sort of very heavy lifestyle doctrine. Everything is seen through that lens. Everything is seen through this this lens. And of course, everything makes sense when you have a lens like that mm. because you know you can explain everything. In, in terms of these things, well, I just I see now. You put on the, the glasses of masculine. Film. I can see now. You know how, what's going on. I can see why my relationships not working. I can see why this isn't happening. I can see what's going on in the world. Everything is perfectly, you know, explained through this doctrinal lens that I've acquired. Well, that's the, that's the appeal of such doctrinal lenses. Religious, it's the fundamentalism trap. You know, everything makes sense now. I've I've discovered this this uh, particular perspective. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for drawing that link. I mean, I heard you talk before, and I was sort of chuckling to myself down the street, um, listening to you on a podcast. To be clear, talking about this this relationship of certainty that people kind of need to to feel, and then how that can become quite fundamentalist. And um, I also. Um, for me, there's this sense of a lot of the uh, conspiracy theories that have, I mean, they've always been around, right? But it, it, more recently, for sure. And for me, it's been, a, it's been a case of just needing some certainty and then like, okay, this is how it is. This makes sense now. And that, that's also um, uh, less than healthy, I would say. But perhaps that's a, another left turn that you don't have to take if you don't want to. I do think that, yes, a motivation for conspiracy theories is a way of explaining uncertain and difficult things. That's one motivation. I don't think it's the whole picture of why people are involved in it in the same way, you know, but I think you're right. That's a, that is a big part. Same with religious conversion of, of various different kinds. I found, you know, my religion now, or I've, you know, I found whatever it is, my lens, my doctrine. Uh, there's something appealing about that. Um, and there's almost always a good idea in there somewhere. We have to we have to be, um, you know, charitable. And well, it's not even being charitable. It's being honest and saying, well, you know, look, there's something in that doctrine. There's something in that lens. There's a reason a person goes there, um, and and that I think needs to be honoured, especially if one wishes to communicate to somebody in the grips of a doctrine. Often it's not it's not possible to communicate to someone who's in the grips of fundamentalism of some type religious or political or whatever the case may be it's difficult to reach them in a sense but one certainly one way of communicating with someone in good faith is to recognize um you know uh, the good part <laughs> you know, of it oh yeah yeah and to recognize the good aspects of the motivation and of the view you know it's necessary otherwise it just becomes this oppositional thing which is where fundamentalism thrives Right, and we're kind of seeing that a lot more now. Things are becoming more and more polarized, and you know, uh, I, I, I don't actually. I do want to draw a line there, not not kind of go down that route, and um, <laughs> bring us back to uh, men's work question mark and what you guys do if you're willing to share roughly, you know, uh, what you do in your men's study groups because you've you've divided them up for for a reason, um, and I'd love to know what that is and your feelings towards 
men's work out there, you know, as I'm someone that's kind of passionate about it, learning about it and seeing so many different flavors out there, some I find less helpful. Um, and who am I to judge? You know, I'm just kind of relating through my own experience of where I'm at, but uh, your thoughts. Yeah, it's a very interesting area, actually. Um, I'm actually really interested in, you mentioned before that you're having questions or doubts or uh, rethinks, right, about uh, this area. I'm really curious as, as to what that is, uh, as to what those are, I should say. Um, I had a feeling you might do this to me. Um, thank you. So, <laughs> um, I mean, I've predominantly worked with, I'd say, 70% women previously, and I just was following a real calling in terms of my own experiences, um, you know, relating once more to my father, to discovering, you know, men's circles and that there's such healing work in men coming together and learning that they're not on their own and they can actually say how they feel about things and, and, and it's okay to reach out for support and things that uh, I believe, you know, men are struggling to do more and more and, and questioning the, the roles of where they are, et cetera. And so I believe that there's a need to get men together and just to kind of, you know, at some point feel proud about who we are again. There's, there's lots of narratives out there and I don't want to get sucked into any one particular, but as women kind of um, do their thing and, and they're growing, it's like beautiful. And yet men are kind of, they're, they're not coming together and, and figuring out, you know, men's circles still seem to be a little bit taboo and you know, I've got to be the strong man and I've got to fit certain roles. And so there seems to be a need for it. Um, and yet the languaging around it and what it means is I'm, I'm, I'm kind of questioning. I've got some other teachers that really work in the realms of presence, you know, and, 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 and integrity. And I think these are really important words, but there's a, just this niggling thought in the back of my head that it's like, isn't this just beyond gender? Like, are, are we not just holding on to roles in, in some ways? Like there are skills that I don't have as a human that I need to work on you know, but that's not so that I can then be a man and, and fit better into a society. Like I, I don't like that idea. So I'm, I'm as, as much as the work that I'm doing with men is really impactful and I'm actually able to help men, um, especially that kind of recovering nice guy, that, like I was just unable to set boundaries and say what he wants and, and actually lead, you know, in relationship and fear of rejection, all that kind of stuff. It's like, it's useful. And therefore it's useful to talk about nice guys but there are also nice women out there. Michaela talks about super woman syndrome and this for sure a superman syndrome. And so it's like, yes, we identify primarily as men and women still, but all these conversations are happening. And I'm like, is this actually helpful? There's this, there's a question for me in the back of my mind there. Like it's all relational at the end of the day, how we relate to ourselves as, as humans, but also how we relate to each other. And I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure if, uh, we're putting ourselves in boxes sometimes. And yet there's great value in the men's work that I've experienced too. So does that give you a sense of where I'm at? Mm. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a, a way to come to the heart of it, of what you've said there. And um, 
Well, perhaps I'll ask one or, one or two more questions. Of course, you, you can rebuff my questions if you want, but um, so what are you going to do about that? I mean, what's what's the next? Are you just at the point of of these threads of inquiry? This is this is the front edge of your of your thinking on it. Is that was that, or is there more to it? Um, <clears throat> I think there's the where my curiosity lies around the future of all of this kind of thing and what, where I want to move into. And then there's the reality of like, well, I'm, I'm making a living in this space. And those two things, like, you know, I was a Wim Hof method instructor for a time. Uh, and that took me around the world and it was fantastic. And it gave me lots of opportunities, but then it came a point where I was like, hmm, my heart's not in this anymore. And, and, and some other things that we don't need to go into, but I was like questioning that and, and, several aspects of it and then I just said okay I don't want to do this anymore and then that led me in a space of like okay I'm freer and, and I'm I'm moving more in a direction that I want to but you know as a business as a financial thing as it was like not so smart just like moving into the work realm of men's work was you know having primarily worked with women and then seemingly cutting off that flow and talking very differently about these kind of things was also like a ah, so there's there's some challenges uh, there as well so I have to be kind of smart about this and yet it doesn't feel an integrity to be teaching something where I'm, I'm not fully in, in, in agreement with, or I'm not quite convinced by anymore. So that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. Yeah, that's, that's quite a conundrum. And so I'm curious when it came to um, when moving from Wim Hof to what you're doing now, was it a case that you ran out of, uh, you, you know, your, your Wim Hof, um, you know, compatibility or something ended and then there was a gap what am i going to do uh, you're looking around you think oh maybe i'll do men's stuff or was it a case that you had an increasing interest in in men's work that eventually sort of eclipsed uh what you were doing with wim hof or seemed to be a perhaps there was something about the men's work that was more appealing to you than wim hof so what i'm saying is did you go from one directly to the other um or was it was there a gap of looking for your new thing to do after you no longer felt aligned with Wim Hof method? No, for sure not. And in between these two things, there was this longer period of working sort of non-gender specifically, but going a little bit uh, deeper, dare I say. And I, I, this is zero judgment criticism out there to people that heavily into Wim Hof workshops, but after a while, breathing activities and ice bars, that's the, the format. And I was like, I want to work with these uh peak experiences as, as ways to open up our body and mind and to, to relate to each other so then like how can we as, as someone who used to facilitate you know english lessons but essentially communication for like 10 years how can we get people in relationship to each other i don't want to be the guy in a pulpit saying like do this feel this off you go it's like how can we you know like connect better to each other and so that was kind of authentic relating and authenticity workshops and understanding our needs better real kind of self-development stuff this word purpose which you know is, is very loaded again but like connection and meaning so that was kind of definitely kind of eclipsing what was possible with um what i judged to be possible with teaching the Wim Hof method and then from that place it was like then the calling uh, to to uh, men's work then kind of eclipsed this but it didn't also make it less relevant it was just a different direction what was it about the men's work that so it sounds to me like um you found 
with all due respect, you emphasized the Wim Hof method uh, to be, you, you wanted to do something broader than that. You wanted to open up to something broader than that and in, in reintroduce, re include some of your skills in English and in English teaching and facilitating communication. Sounds like you're, you're growing into these other communication styles, these different techniques and methods of relating. You're trying those out and you want to broaden your professional activities beyond um, the codified method of Wim Hof to a more broader thing. So that took you in that direction. You're nodding, so I'm, I'm guessing that's right. So what, what was it about men's work then that took you, uh, took you away from, from that, that, that intermediary activity? My mind's slightly distracted by the fact that this is turning into what feels like a coaching session, and I'm wondering if there's a bill coming through. That uh -uh. said, I'm, um, I'm, I'm fully on board, so thank you for asking, uh, asking that question. It was this relational piece again, like having men sit in circle, having men being able to um, show up more in their relationships, you know, like so that they can actually be the fullest expression of themselves for want of a better phrase. You know, this relational piece of like men that I felt like that were hiding, learning to kind of actually, um, yeah, just self-acceptance, I guess. That's, that's, that's more the, the, the theme of it. And, and, and in relation with each other once more, that is so powerful. There was, there was power in that and it was, it felt um, juicy. So it was, it's, I'm asking this because it, I, I have remembered your question. <laughs> and so this is actually extremely helpful for how I can answer it. Um, but of course, we don't have to do it, but you said you, you're enjoying it, so let's go. So I have, do have a couple more questions. So, it's, so it sounds like the men's work was almost a kind of slice of what you were doing. So you went from Wim Hof, very narrow, to a very broad thing. And then in, in that broad thing, there are already the threads and flavors of what you're doing now. And you kind of honed in on that. Oh, this is particularly interesting. Of this broad activism I'm doing, this men's stuff is particularly interesting. As you pointed out, the relationships, the coming into the fullness and all that. And you said, well, I really want to, that's actually what's of this broad thing. I want to zoom in or home in on, on that. And that's what, what's brought you to this place. Um, would that be a fair reflection? Yes, sir, it would. Yeah. And now there seems to be another recalibration, you're saying, right? There's another recalibration of your, of your uh, aperture, professional aperture. Are you able to identify some of the of that recalibration i mean of course in six months to a year's time it'll be easy to talk about it just like you've talked about those other ones but what what's does it look like it is happening happening to you now the word um, embodiment comes to mind and this thread of i mean men in embodiment just seems like too crazy a, a niche to even go down but I think there's real value in that but just in the flavor of embodiment and more relational work once more now that you know COVID's kind of let's hope over and, and workshops and that kind of thing are possible again just kind of getting uh, humans to, together and not just kind of focusing on men because that there's also that's you know there's there's more than just working with men and I actually feel like um, I'm missing something you know and not working with women as much and this this potential to work with um, men, women together, and also to, to dive into this uh, you know, somatic work a bit more and, and guide that beyond kind of coaching, purpose, meaning, etc. 
like that that feels very very exciting slash very very scary um and to do that just for men also sounds financially like a disaster <laughs> so th th that is a piece right and how much of how much of this trajectory you've described mirrors your own personal development correlates directly i would say so yeah so it sounds like you have a few a few um factors that you're trying to balance one of them is you know you're going on your own journey of exploration and you're sharing as you go what it is you're learning so you get into Wim Hof and then you get competent at Wim Hof to the point where you can share it with others and you share it with others and then you're going into authentic relating and these other sorts of things you start to learn there you acquire competency in those modalities uh, you want to share it so this is sort of um you're exploring these things learning them and then teaching them so if someone was to follow your work the whole way uh through they'd be in a certain sense going going along with you you know a couple of pages behind you in the banjo book as billy Connolly would say you know, <laughs> you know but nonetheless but you know going through this sort of series of things very interesting yeah and so then then you, but the fact that that is both a personal journey and a business journey uh, leads you to some interesting opportunities, but also some interesting problems. One of the opportunities is that um, uh, you know you can go anywhere with it. You, know, you can go anywhere, wherever you're interested. You can go there, and you can you know monetize what you eventually learn there. That's that's interesting quite fresh creative exploratory you know um and it also it seems probably perhaps would give you a kind of um uh, you know a, a point to some of your own explorations beyond just your own enrichment personal i mean personal enrichment you're also sort of this sense of wanting to share with others so that perhaps contextualizes how you would learn something maybe you'd learn it differently more thoroughly um or so or it justifies to you maybe even um you're nodding which is why i'm you know continuing down that thread uh, doing it so that's you know kind of service aspect too meaning but the problem is then how do you stay in integrity with that and how do you make money from that you know in an integrity in a way in an integrity way right yeah then you got all these sort of usual business problems you know if your business is whatever you're really into at that time how do you how do you you know build a client base and how can you make sure that the thing you're selling is something you can stand behind and how can you make sure it's something that you can stand behind in you know, when, when it gets no longer something you can stand behind, how do you reconcile having done that for the last two, three or four years? <laughs> so all this stuff, yeah. These are all narrative points. So that helps a lot because in, in answering your question, anyway, do you have any reflections on that before I, I go back to answering your question? Um, it's been very useful for me to quiz you like that. No, no, um, slight vulnerability hangover, but it's also been really nice to have what you said reflected back at me and that's that's very much kind of the experience of where i'm at so i'm just kind of keen to see where you take this now in relation to the original question but thank you yeah well then the question becomes is the problem men's work or is the problem authentic relating or is the problem wim hof or is the friction point inherent in the setup of your of, of your 
business trajectory, you know. Meaning the fact that you want to move on from these things isn't necessarily, yes, you recognize their limitations and you, and you move past them, or you just change your interest, or you refocus from within that to something specific, or having gone specific with the men, now you want to go more broadly with people in general. You want to take something from the embodiment, but more broadly. There's this sort of honing in and then opening up and honing in and opening up and going beyond the limits of each system. You know, I, I love meditation, right? But I do other things too. I, I exercise and, um, you know, I read books and I do a lot of other stuff. I wouldn't expect meditation to have everything for me. If I'm teaching meditation, um, there are many things that people ought to be doing that are not meditation. If I was just a meditation teacher, which I'm not, but if I was just a meditation teacher, then um, I'd have to accept that there's a lot of other important things in life that isn't meditation. And that's inherent in any activity. If you're teaching embodiment, well, yeah, it's great to teach embodiment, but there's, you know, and that's good, but it's not the golden chalice of everything. You know, there are, there is other stuff too. If you're doing Wim Hof, I mean, you're doing Wim Hof. It's great. It's Wim Hof method. You know, it's so cool, but is it missing a lot? Uh, yeah, of course, because it's not supposed to be everything, you know, it's Wim Hof. So I think that's true also with this sort of men's, these men's things, you know, yeah, there's lots of different men's, um, groups, um, a men's, uh, you know, uh, you know, things out there, teachers, writers, authors, methods. And, um, they are what they are. And some of them are, you know, probably healthier than others. I agree. When we're doing that kind of thing, it's, it's within an ecosystem, a broader ecosystem of, we recognize it as part of a broader ecosystem. It's not comprehensive. It's not all you need. Are you, you're a man, you identify as a man, come into our group and uh, that's all you need. It's, it's not like that. It's, just, it's a way of exploring certain things in a certain context. And uh, many of the things we explore there are generically uh, human based, you know, they're human before they're, you know, gendered. Yeah, that's certainly true. Many things are like that. Um, so once again, we come, I think, to this essentializing, you know, essentializing. We're looking for something to be everything or looking for something to be the, fun the fundamental ground on which we can stand. Um, it works until it doesn't anymore. Or, you know, we can have a lens that's so useful and we can engage in it almost as a fundamentalist um, or a zealot adherent. And then eventually, however, eventually, probably, unless you're that category of person that can sustain being a fundamentalist over a lifetime. And there are people like that, but and if there's somebody like you, you're going to, you know, you're going to grow beyond that, or you're going to hone in or something like that. You're moving through the system. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, that's a creative pattern you've got there. It's quite a creative, um, approach to your business that you're, you're operating in there. Do you need to discard the previous things you're doing in order to do the next thing? Does it need to be so black and white? That's that's the question that I'd wonder about from a business point of view, too. You know, but I think your integrity to not settle for continuing to do something that you're not, you know, there's some you're not quite sure or can't put your finger on it, something not quite lining up anymore. I think that's very laudable. Very laudable, indeed. There are a lot of people who, who just rock up and uh, like, uh, you know, 
an aged rock band playing the greatest hits from 40 years ago. You know, a lot of people that do that, you know, you're not doing that. That's good. But it has specific problems too, you know, uh, challenges maybe from a business point of view. But I think it's a, it's a high integrity position. That's good. Um, yeah, so I would say in your original question is about how we do men's men's you know groups and women's groups, and we you know, we have a whole ecosystem of things we do, and none of them is this the final stop in life. Um, they fit together. Some people just follow one track of things they like. Michaela and I am talking about. We do relationships things. We do men's, we do embodiment. We do trauma things. You know, we do meditations. We do so many different things uh, in our catalog of. Um, of uh, offerings uh, that uh, you know, not, none of them are in themselves everything a person would need for for life. <laughs> Heaven would forbid, you, you know. And if, <laughs> and if we do come out with that, if we do come out with the this is the thing, this contains everything you possibly need for life, and then we become a cult. <laughs> you know, it's not good. Agreed. But what kind of things would you teach men, for example, or offer men, maybe that's a better word, mm-hmm. that you might not for women, for example, and, and vice versa? You know, why split people up in it at all? Well, there's nothing especially, uh, it's not so much always the material. Sometimes it's the style. Sometimes it's the way in which people feel they can open up in certain ways when they're in certain groups. Um, you know, uh, Men together tend to have a different flow, a different way of communicating uh, than if there's a lady there, although there's almost always Michaela there, at least, you know, so we're in that way a little bit different because, you know, I'm a man and she's a woman and we're often in both of our groups, um, not all the time, but very often. And so also when ladies get together, there's a, sometimes they report, they report, we don't, we don't impose that, we don't make a big deal of it, we don't point to it, we don't point to it a lot. But it's reported sometimes. Oh, it's nice to be together with just ladies. They will say that actually. It feels different to them somehow when they don't have, a, you know, to think of, of of guys there. It's not that the guys are bad or wrong or anything like that. It's just a different vibe, it seems. And um, same with the the, the the guys. Sometimes you know, uh, r- report that too. But it's we don't emphasize that. We don't say, "Isn't it nice to all be together in the treehouse without any of those smelly <laughs> ladies?" We don't we don't emphasize it part of the container if you like yeah yeah i just see um the opposite happening so often um and i'm just like "Ah, mm, yeah and you know of course i'm just learning from what i see and like trusting my gut as to what makes sense to me and so again it's nice to hear you um speak to the opposite of that like i I find this more helpful than kind of boxing in because the the example that i heard from a guy once was that he went to one of these events where the men were practicing masculine sort of stoicism and, and they basically had to stand as still as they could holding sticks. And if they moved then they were, you know, hit. And then the women were practicing being in their feminine and they were rolling around in, you know, saunas and <laughs> eating grapes and just, you know, receiving. Right. And then they come together and it's like sparks fly polarity and big fuck puddle and awesome. But like, it sounds like a cool experience, but I wonder uh, how how kind of helpful that is, you know, long term in, in terms of is that what's expecting of me now, or, or maybe it's taught yeah. in that look. This is just you know, this is just a bit of fun, you know. But like, if if you're taught that, to practice doing this, and uh, what about practicing doing the other? And so when you talked about lead and follow being just like a yeah, like a non gender specific thing, that makes um, 
sense. Uh, yeah, yeah, within a relational context. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, if people want, you know, people are free to do whatever they like, right? If, if that sounds like a good time, then I suppose it's nice that someone's offering that. And what's the frame behind it? You know, what's the frame around that? Um, is it some sort of this is a prescription for the way you should live every aspect of your life from now on? Consider this a metaphor for your life's mission. For, uh, you know, this is a prescriptive now to how you should be doing. So you should always ask yourself, is what I'm doing, metaphorically speaking, standing here with a stick in my hand? Um, and not moving, rooted in, you know, this ideal. Uh, that, I think, is perhaps be rather limiting. But once again, we come back to it, um, to expect something like that to somehow encapsulate everything you need for life. You know, that's your lens. You can just go through that. That would be perhaps a little bit foolish to do. Um, but I don't, I, I don't imagine that they were doing it that way. I mean, maybe they were, but, you know. Like it, it sounds like they were having fun doing that, you know. Yeah, people do all kind of weird things. But anyway, uh, yeah. So, in, you know, what do we do in our in our groups with the, with the guys? All kind of things. Yeah, we do meditation. We work on things like uh, embodiment. We work on, depends on the group. You know, we've done them for many years, so we sometimes theme them. Sometimes we look at erotic issues, technical issues of an erotic kind. Um, other, we might look at, uh, we might take a, a, a walk through sort of elemental framework. We might look at archetypal frameworks um, as, a, as a sort of access to exploration, but fundamentally our philosophy is inquiry over imposition. So we're attempting to foster and facilitate through these various different means and containers, inquiry and investigation in the participants, empowering them, uh, if you want, to uh, explore their experience uh, and so on, as opposed to say imposing upon them um, the doctrine or the uh, conclusion or the prescription. Um, we, we don't tend to do that. So, oh, you know, we know and you don't. And so we're going to tell you how you do it. Of course, the one who really knows, knows there's no substitute for finding out for yourself. If I've been to Amsterdam and I think it's great and you're an Amsterdam fan and you've read all the books about Amsterdam and you know all about Amsterdam, I'm going to say to you as someone who's been there, I'm going to say, gosh, there's really no substitute for going there. You should just pop on a flight over to Amsterdam. If you're so into it, go over there and just discover it for yourself and enjoy it for yourself and uh, have that experience. The person who knows, knows the value of knowing and isn't content, I think, to simply be a meaning merchant, um, peddling secondhand, secondhand um, information. Uh, you know, knowing about it is enough. Well, uh, someone who knows would not say that, uh, I think, very, very, very as easily, maybe, as someone who thinks they know because they heard it from someone who heard it from someone who read it in a book by a person who read it in a book, maybe with no experience all the way down the line. So this inquiry over imposition is, is I think, a general lens that we use in all of our um, teaching style. Mm hmm. Mm. I'm wondering. Oh, may I say, may yes, I say sir. then, perhaps that this is one of the reasons. This is one of the. This is one of the justifications for engaging in an activity that isn't in itself comprehensive. You know, I'm thinking about your uh, move through these different systems and approaches and um, business shapes. You know, um, the practice of practice inquiry over imposition anything can become your yoga in that sense 
Okay, yeah, yoga, meditation, um, hiking, weight training, language learning, relationships, you know, all of these can be uh, expressions, you know, of uh, or venues for one's yoga, for one's, in, you know, inquiry and investigation. And in that sense, there is something that holds them together, which is this, you know, I'm talking in my case, perhaps, uh, this inquiry over imposition in the way we, we present things. So it's not necessary for your activity to itself be comprehensively apply, uh, applicable to absolutely every single thing. Well, I'm, this is my thing. I'm an authentic relating person, and that's, this is how one should communicate. We should communicate authentically. <laughs> of course, it's rubbish. You know, <laughs> a foolish idea. I'm not saying authentic relationship rubbish. I'm saying it's, you know, it's a way of looking at a certain aspect of, you know, uh, so it's not how you should communicate all the time. That would be strange. And, um, <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Well, that's why, you know, you're not, you know, you're not teaching that only anymore. So, um, but that doesn't mean authentic relating should be cast down because it, it's just a, you know, it's a way in, it's a way of exploring and can be honored for that. Hmm. You don't have to require these things to be everything, I think, or final. Right, right. Even right. if, even if the, even if those who are propagating that method presented in that way, you know, of course, pro propagators of methods often do present their methods in that way for marketing reasons or due to their own lack of imagination. But um, we don't, you know, there are good things to be had in all of these explorations, um, alongside the, uh, you know, w w without having to make everything comprehensive um, without having to demand that of of our of our methods our explorations and indeed of each other beautiful well said um i wanted to ask you about methods and in particular uh, the cohen method if i'm pronouncing that correctly that you know if i've got um, your downloadable dvds um and i find real value in uh, uh were they dvds at one point by the way like because you, you they still okay. are yeah i still have some uh, mostly in California, but I, oh, they're not here. They're in a box somewhere. But yeah, I still have, there are still DVDs mm -hmm. wow. or downloads. I find so much value in them. I, I wondered if you were willing to share a bit about that, how it, how you've kind of put together what this kind of somatic engagement practice, if that's not butchering what you're, what it is, and, and share kind of um, you know, how that uh, has helped you and other people as well. Because there's so much uh, embodiment's a big word and a big term, but you've managed to put something very interesting and once more like an exploratory together, which I'd love you to share about. Oh, thank you. Yes, movement kind method. It's on the back of the DVD. <laughs> it says a joint nourishing fusion, fusion of body-based mindfulness. I think, or a fusion of joint nourishing movement and body-based mindfulness. I think that's the tagline, if I recall. And um, it's a way of, you know, koan is, uh, is in Zen, it's a sort of um, training device. Some people would describe it as a riddle, uh, one way of putting it, but perhaps not the most accurate way, but it's a sort of device, training device where your Zen teacher will say something like, what's the sound of one hand clapping? Or if does a dog have Buddha nature? Right? And then you sit there in your meditation, and you ponder that. And it's a sort of, um, if you want, means of inquiry or means of training or means of investigation of producing insight or refining insight of a sort of spiritual zen nature and so on okay so that's what our koan is and uh we are setting up similar 
situations in the body in movement kind method um, lenses of inquiry through movement and through feeling the body in various different ways uh, to investigate certain themes. So to give an example, minimum necessary muscular activation, minimum necessary muscular activation. Uh, we investigate that sort of thing. So in, in, as you know, because you've, you've seen the, the downloads on, on one occasion, we might stand on one leg and swing the other leg, sort of back and forth gently. So you're sort of standing on one leg and then swinging the other one back and forth. And then I might encourage the person to um, question the layers of tension and to as much as um, necessary, uh, to, to use as little tension as necessary to stand in that position in the leg. So see how much you can relax the base leg without while still maintaining the posture. Minimum necessary muscular activation. Minimum possible muscular activation, you'd be totally relaxed on the ground. So you do need a certain degree of muscular activation and tension. How much is that? Or we're questioning the layers of tension. And when you do that, so we're setting up an investigation. And so that's a little bit the basic premise of many of the things that are happening in movement kind method. And so when you do that, what might you discover? Well, here's some things you might discover. You might discover that when you relax the base leg um, of its excess tension, or some of its excess tension, you begin to question those layers the feeling of the fatigue spikes. So you, you feel then underneath the fatigue in the leg, because we don't only use tension for what it looks like it's for, like standing on one leg, we also use it to brace or anesthetize against feeling. Like when you're someone's going to inject you with a needle in the hospital, uh, very often what you do, grit your teeth, you know, tension muscles, right? So it's one of the things we use tension for is a sort of brace against feeling. It's one of the reasons why relaxing tension can unlock feeling, good and bad, you know, pleasure and pain. Anyway, so you start to notice, oh gosh, I'm using a certain layer of tension to anesthetize that muscular fatigue. Of course, it's interesting because we're using muscular tension to drown out the feeling of muscular fatigue, which is the product of muscular tension. So it's not an especially efficient way of doing it, but it's nonetheless, so we can learn something about that. There's something to learn there. Something else we might discover or might occur to us is, um, you know, and sometimes I'll point these things out, sometimes not, um, it depends. But one of the things we might uh, discover also is that there's a sense in which we're balancing on one leg and we might be bracing in anticipation of future balance needs. Think, well, how long am I going to be standing here swinging my leg back and forth? Uh, I might I, need, I might need to balance over some, a period of time. So I better get ready in case I need to balance more in the future or adjust. And so in a sense, we're attempting to balance in the future as well as attempting to balance right now. And that's more things than perhaps are necessary. You don't need to balance for one minute. All you need to do is balance now. If you can balance now, then you'll be balanced now. And if you're there for a minute, you know, in, in time, then each point in that time that you are will be now <laughs> and balanced. So one does not have to brace in anticipation of one's future balance needs. Just simply balance now. Now you're balanced. Now you're balanced. Don't worry about balancing in four seconds time. Don't worry about balancing over a minute. You can't do it. All you can do is just balance now, and then the time passes in that way. So there's something that's interesting there about work rate. 
there are many implications from this sort of a setup. One of them could be work rate. What, you know, we're talking about work rate, we're talking about efficiency in any work capacity, physical work um, capacity, like standing on a leg or any other kind of work. Part of efficiency is um, input output. How much are you outputting to get what back? Sort of efficiency, right? And so if we're questioning the layers of tension and we're clarifying what or disambiguating the different uses of tension, then we can figure out how much we actually need to stand. Okay. And how much we actually, why, you know, we're doing this anesthetizing. Okay. If you need to be efficient, you're going to have to drop that or, or minimize the anesthetizing effect of muscular tension because you need that work rate. You need to put it into uh, standing on one leg for however long it might be. Or if you're bracing for the future and it's not helping, it's just costing energy. Well, if you can clarify that and perhaps refocus on the work needed to actually balance, you'll be better at balancing. So you might think, well, who cares about balancing one leg? Well, of course, in a sense, you know, it is arbitrary on a certain level. But what we're doing with movement kind of methods, we're using the body as a venue to just to, to explore those things, those tendencies of one's personality, one's character, one's mind, one's habit. And when you have it in the body, uh, then it becomes much, much easier to sort of perceive it and feel it in other perhaps more abstract scenarios, like in relationship or in one's work or in one's intellectual pursuits or or in one's emotional processes, etc. It's a little bit like when you've had, you know, you've had bacon or coffee or, you know, you smell instant bodily recognition. Ah, that's coffee. You know, I smell coffee. And you start to go towards the coffee, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, or the bacon, you know. There's that great advert of uh, that you used to have in the UK. You probably remember it, Richard. I'm thinking just because we're both Brits, where the person would smell bacon cooking and then you'd, the person would sort of like fly on the fumes towards the bacon. Do you remember that advert? <laughs> yeah, it's like that. So there's that bodily recognition. Aha, I've been here before. Oh, that's what this is. So rather than attempting this sort of top-down conceptual thing where we learn an idea and try to sort of force it into every situation or to just, you know, we're getting it in the body and then the aha arises from the bottom up, rises from the bottom Aha, I recognize. Aha, I see what's happening here. Aha, that's how my mind's working. Oh, I see that's this principle um, in action. I'm seeing a principle in action. I've noticed something. And then when one practices that regularly or occasionally, whatever the case may be, these insights can be ported quite naturally. They naturally arise in other situations. Um, so this is this is the idea. So it's self-inquiry on a certain level um, via these inquiries set up in the body. I'd say that's basically the idea of movement kind, as the name is is pointing to. Then we're doing many many other things, of course, in those DVDs, as you know, in those downloads. But that's I think that's a, a good sense of the flavor of it. Yeah. Thank you. And to kind of zoom out a bit in terms of your relationship to kind of somatic work and, and your level of excitement towards that, like how big a role does that play? Because meditation is, is you know, well, there's arguably somatic elements to it, but there's not a lot of movement, right? And yet I also see that movement's a big part of what you do and you offer. How does that, if it does at all, like play into um, relational work? Yeah, I mean, you said two or three very interesting things there. You're right. When when one's sitting in meditation and not 
are not moving. Okay, there are micro adjustments and there's movement going on. There's circulation. There's you know etc. Cetera, et cetera, yeah, respiration. But but you're right. Of course, one's basically sitting in what we can call stillness, a kind of stillness. It's a. I think it's a continuum. Movement uh, is a continuum from less meditating to more movement cry method, whatever. I don't see a break there. Of course, you're right that there's a continuum, at least, right? More, less movement, more movement. But I see it as sort of part of the same thing. I think meditation is profoundly somatic um, in the same way that we are profoundly somatic. And uh, yeah, so I see them as, um, you know, different expressions of we could we could say yoga, but I don't mean yoga like yoga studio yoga. I mean it in the sense of inquiry, you know, inquiry, investigation, you know, this sort of thing, exploration, adventure. There are different ways of articulating that sort of activity, um, but actually fundamentally super related. I um, yeah. As for relationship. Um, Yeah, I mean, th this is such a vast thing. Relationship has potential for so many things, doesn't it? Some people use relationship for self-inquiry. They're in relationship to discover more about themselves. Primarily, you know, I'm using their relationship as a vehicle for their own personal growth, or sometimes I say their own apotheosis, right? And you see that sometimes. And certain couples who are oriented towards personal growth and that can mean different things. Sometimes it means that they're both interested in exploring together the sorts of things we've discussed. I mean, not maybe the activities, but the theme. But um, sometimes it means, however, um, I'm using you as a stepping stone for my apotheosis, <laughs> <laughs> my ascension as to the next level. <laughs> and so there can be this sort of mutual rejection almost. Um, the, 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 the relationship becomes a workshop. It becomes, um, you know, uh, becomes a smelting pot of, of one's purification. And now, of course, relationships are those things sometimes, yes. But some people choose to make that their main thing. Okay, I mean, that's available, I think, isn't it? People have all different reasons to get into relationships. In fact, one of the big things that Michaela and I often emphasize is to know your why, to really know why are you in a relationship or why do you want to be in a relationship? And there are different reasons that people have. So it's not that you have to have the why that we think is right. Once again, we're not inquiry over imposition. I mean, there are certainly whys lead to different places. So if one of you is looking for a relationship to be a place of sanctuary and nurture, perhaps a family, uh, to start a family or whatever, some sort of a place where one can be inner um, and guard down. And another person wants to use it as um, you know, the, the hammer and anvil of, of their ascension. Well, uh, it's going to be a little bit different feeling, <laughs> you know, in the relationship. Uh, or somebody wants a family and someone doesn't. I mean, there's an, there's an easy example, right? I want children. I don't want children. Um, you know, I want uh, to travel. I want to stay here. And you know, there's all different kinds of, I want a relationship to be a vehicle of this or that. So there are all these different ideas. So I think uh, knowing what is the purpose of, your relationship. Um, by purpose here, I mean it in a very colloquial sense. That's another loaded word. 
just mean why you're in it. Why why do you why do you want a relationship? And I think that's an interesting thing to discuss with one's partner, um, or to discuss with oneself if one is looking. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, yeah. go on. Sorry, yeah. I was going to say you and Michaela did a series of kind of conversations. I'd say that you put out as podcasts, and I'd recommend anyone to go and check them out because you you really talk about this as well in, in depth, and that really helped me and, and a few people I know just pos- posit that question, like why do you want to be in a relationship? And, and if you're in one, like, have you checked in with each other recently on that? And th- most of the time in the friends that I knew, it was like, Oh um, no. And then it led to a very, very helpful discussion, let's say, you know? So like I'd recommend anyone go check those out. Um, I was also kind of uh, trying to like this, this somatic practice can be a very solo experience. And I'm, so I'm wondering you know, if, if you see it, working in, in in relationship or if you offer that kind of work if it's possible you know oh i see yes actually um that's the third one actually i have two movement crown things the third one was going to be that yeah when we're in a group i'm teaching groups we do a lot of um okay so i should say these first two dvds are standalone and I, in that sense that they stand alone from each other but also that they stand alone you don't need anyone else to do it so you can do it by yourself but yeah when we're uh, when i'm teaching movement kind method in groups live and so on right um then yeah we do a lot of stuff involving relationship uh and here i see what you mean by the word relationship um yeah in pairs in trios in groups and learn you know and then using this sort of two-bodied uh, configuration to do the sorts of things that we discussed previously in the in the sort of single-bodied version. Yeah, it's really interesting and fun. There's lots of cool cool things you could do with that. A lot of humor and a lot of um, creativity that one can one can have when one applies the two-bodied or multi-bodied configuration. Yeah, mm. yeah, we do that. I can just see where my mind is kind of going. It's like the, the thing to like look at, but that's the thing to do next. And again, there's just this constant, like what I'm getting back from you is this kind of like temp- tempering down of like, yeah, this is possible and this can be fun as well. And it's just a, a really beautiful reflection of how I'm approaching things with such kind of verve. And, and uh, I don't think it's helpful is what I'm saying. So I'm, I'm uh, yeah, I'm feeling very pacified. And again, I, I mean to say that in a very positive way. And it's just, just kind of re uh, helping me recalibrate my approach to this. Um, so once again, just uh, thank you. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but um, I appreciate it. Hmm. It does make sense. Yes. Yeah. Go on. Oh, well, it does make sense. And um, yeah, that's the benefit, I think, of conversation like we're having. Of course, it's a sort of format of conversations of, you know, podcast interview style, but nonetheless, we all have our different ways, don't we, of approaching things and our different view and different, different temperament, different makeup, I think also different character, like, you know, my brother, there are pros and cons to his way of playing computer games and pros and cons to my <laughs> way of playing computer games. And, you know, it's like, who's right? Well, it's, I mean, uh, it's it's hard to exactly say. It depends. We'd have to really. It's not not easy to say exactly what what's the answer to that. There are pros and cons to both, and so that um, yeah, seasoning being seasoned in conversation and so on. I think it's a really interesting way of opening new perspectives. Uh, one can't necessarily do it all oneself. We need each other, um, or benefit at least from each other 
in friendship and conversation and relationships of all types. You know, any any one method doesn't have to be the whole thing, and one doesn't have to demand that of methods or of each other or indeed of oneself. Taking notes, sir. <laughs> that, that last bit in particular um, rang true. And my mum, who is always listening, is no doubt chuckling along as well. So uh, thank you for that. So final kind of uh, theme or area, and that's kind of your life today, how you are continuing to grow, like what excites you and kind of, yeah, what are you moving into? Like, because... I, if I may, I see you as like a, a kind of a, a modern day um, renunciate almost, you know, it's like if, if we kind of, <laughs> if we talk about, and for anyone that's not aware of the term, like in, in yoga, at least they talk about householders that, you know, have like a family and they have a job and they go through life and they have, you know, attachments and things. And the renunciate is like the fraction of society that will head off into the hills and not have many possessions, if any, of course. And then just, you know, I'm not saying that was a conscious choice in any sway of yours but the way that you grew up you know you learned to do these things very young you seem to be living very humbly i think on a, a houseboat uh like <laughs> so i'm really curious as to where you uh where you're going and what excites you and, and what you're how you see your life and, and what you're what you want to do with it is that as you open to talking about that mm -hmm. sure um you mean yes i think it's a very interesting question and that's a very interesting um, view you're describing there of, of the way I come across. Perhaps it's the beard. <laughs> <laughs> you look, out, I don't want to say homeless, renunciate. <laughs> There's something uh, renunciate about you, is it? <clears throat> okay, Richard, you can say what you really mean. <laughs> I have the highest respect for you, sir. Um, <laughs> I think that comes across, and there's there's no homeless vibe to it whatsoever. I'm just, humble, I'm just I'm minding you. Okay, you are, and, and it's worth. I'm just teasing um, you. I'm just teasing you. <laughs> I'm just having a laugh. Yeah, I'm just having a laugh. Um, yeah. Well, you know, we all have different sides, but um, gosh, uh, thinking in the future and so on. Well, you know, we've been through this pandemic, right? Um, and uh, I spent most of it on the boat here. And it was so wonderful. Now, before that, for most of my adult life, always traveling, traveling around. I expect you're similar, traveling around different places, teaching uh, things, you know, events and so on. Um, so I spent a lot of time on the road and splitting my time between the States, more in the States actually than not. And then I'd come here when I wasn't doing work, you know, which is maybe a month or two of the year. So in total. So to suddenly have all that change and be on the boat for these two years, operating, you know, doing everything online and just staying in one place and going rarely more than three miles from my boat. I had to move my boat to get it re, you know, resurfaced on the bottom. You do that every couple of years. But even then, and that was more than three miles away, but even then I was still on the boat. I took the boat there and lived on the boat while they did it. So I didn't leave it much at all. Uh, recently, however, in the, in the last couple of months, I have uh, traveled again. I was in Asia for for some weeks and so on. But um, it's been so wonderful to be solo on the boat, like you said, more withdrawn uh, from these things. I've, I've loved it, actually. It's been so blissful. We have this saying in the UK, which Richard, of course, you'll know, a change is as good as a rest. 
Mm. Yeah, I like it a lot. So I don't know what the future will hold for me, uh, particularly. Um, I'm happy here on the boat, and I'm happy traveling around also. Of course, from a, a business point of view, of course, the podcast, I'm, I'm very excited about the podcast. I interview people on my podcast and each week a new episode comes out, you know, which, which of course you know about that. And so I'm, I'm excited. I find that so exciting. They're researching the people, meeting them, meeting these people who write these wonderful books and so on and discussing with them their lives and their work. And I really enjoy that. So that's something that interests me. You know, my own um, uh, meditation practice and, you know, just exploring life through means like meditation and physical activity and intellectual pursuits. I have lots of things on the menu there that I'm exploring and are coming that sort of, I suppose, personal uh, pursuits of various kinds that interest me and excite me. And uh, Michaela and I, we're still teaching so much. We're teaching so many things online. We're doing teacher trainings. We're doing um, relational work. We're doing embodiment work of various kinds, somatic work of different sorts, as you point out. Uh, we're looking forward to teaching again in person. You know, we have, um, we'll be at Omega Institute in um, New York area in September, I think, something like this. So, you know, we have things that are starting to open up again and we're starting to teach in person again, which I'm very excited about, these sorts of things, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's spring here on the boat. And so one of the good things about being on the boat or in one place for two years is you get to see the seasons change mm -hmm. right? rather than going from time zone to time zone and season to season and sometimes hemisphere to hemisphere where it, all the seasons are as we know in australia the seasons are backwards they're doing it wrong down there well anyway too late to tell them now but uh so it's all mixed up but to stay in one place and see the seasons unfolding being right on the water in nature it's great so I'm really looking forward to that. May, you know, spring is emerging here. So beautiful. Summer will come. You know, this sort of thing. Yeah. So everything, really. I mean, every, I'm uh, enjoying um, all of that stuff that I've just listed there. Feel free to be more precise, or perhaps that's enough. It's it's beautiful. It's, um, again, not kind of the answer that I might have expected or... Um, I don't know. I didn't expect actually. That's a swear word for me, but it's it's just landed in a in a, in a nice way. So like, I'm, I'm yeah. The fact that you're so okay with like, I went insane having to be kind of stuck in my flat in back in Hamburg. You know, during during COVID, it was winter. It was and that was kind of a hangover from coming back from Bali and then suddenly like landing there. That that was really tough. And so it's nice to know that there's someone like that is completely cool in this little space and is okay being somewhere on the, the canals of you know the English countryside and really really having enjoyed and got so much value out of that and is content I think that's the word that's coming across if I can you know sort of perceive you that way with things as they are and yeah like got my things going on and yeah it's fine like what else do you want me to say and that's uh that's a really nice you know like I can be very future oriented I'm learning not to be um and just be right here right now so uh again uh it was uh, a nice thing to hear. All right. So we've, uh, I mean, there's a million things that I could ask you and, and, and avenues we could go down. Um, we've been at it for a couple of hours now. So just in respect of your time, just 
I'll wrap things up and, and say thank you so, so much. For me, it's been a personal education on, you know, I'm sure other people out there are listening and getting so much from it too. And everything that I've referenced in terms of your work and what you're doing, we'll put uh, links in the in the show notes, of course, so people can come check this stuff out. So uh, yeah, just thank you for your time. I really appreciate it, Steve. Well, thank you for your such kind words here at the end. And I've enjoyed speaking with you a lot, Richard. Thank you. From this week's podcast, if there's been anything that's inspired you, challenged you, or simply left you wanting more, then please reach out to Richie and Mal via their Facebook page, Man Reimagined. Just like you, we're trying to get a handle on all of these issues and topics, so the more we're able to share and talk about them, I think the better off we're all going to be. Until next time, catch you later.